2020 has been a crazy year in so many ways. Australia had those unbelievable wildfires and all that wildlife. I mean, California had massive fires. And for the first time ever, the entire world shut down over this pandemic. And while we were dealing with all the chaos going on, the motorcycle industry was completely blindsided with something no one predicted. Today, a conversation about what happened and what it could mean for motorcyclists as we go forward. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Justin Vince. Simon Pavey. Brian Phil. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Jim Hart. Chris Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Before we get started, I want to thank these fine companies that helped get this episode out today. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. Wow, has 2020 been a crazy year or what? And in the motorcycle industry, something big happened, something really big. Now, you see, back in 2008, when that housing bubble popped, remember the housing bubble, the subprime mortgage and all that that went on? Well, the motorcycle industry kind of went into a free fall. Sales dried up, many motorcyclists closed their door permanently, other ones were bought up by other companies. Many industry folks pondered that this was maybe signaling the end of motorcycle as we knew it till now. Over the ensuing years, many initiatives have been introduced with all roughly the same goal or aim of attracting new riders to motorcycling. Many have fizzled out, but none have succeeded in inspiring mass amounts of new riders to beat the path down to dealerships. It just hasn't happened. But this year, 2020, as the world was dealing with this horrible pandemic, something incredible came out of nowhere for the motorsports industry. Today, we're talking about what happened and how it may affect us riders in the coming years. For this, we have industry insider Robert Pandya. Now, some years ago, Pandya started his gas or give a shift initiative, which was designed to help the aging rider problem in the industry. Of course, all the riders getting older and the younger ones not being that interested. It was to try and help the motorcycle industry figure out what's going on and figure out what they could do to encourage maybe millennials or, or others to ride motorcycles, get interested in motorcycling. Well, this year, Pandya was as surprised as everyone else. And well, here's his views on what happened and what it may mean for us. Hear me okay? Yes, I can. Oh, that's better. Good. You bet. My name is Robert Pandia. I live in Georgetown, Texas, and uh, I'm currently doing a lot of uh, creative consulting work. 
in the world of motorcycling, but I've been in the motorcycle industry for 25 plus years, almost 30 years now. Robert, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's been a couple of years since we talked. We, we, I think it was two years ago. It was, it was uh, as a matter of fact, it was May, 2018. We had you on, we were, we were talking about your, your give a shift initiative gas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At that point, we were talking about getting the uh, motorcycle industry um, sort of restarted almost in, in a way, because as everyone knew up to that point, it had been sort of dying off and, and we'd lost, I guess there was that, that um, bubble in our industry that was that collapsed along with the housing bubble in 2008 and sales sort of dove after that. We lost uh, the, um, I think we sort of lost an ability to bring in new riders. A lot's changed over this past year. Um, can you talk a bit about what you've seen happen um, maybe in the past six months or eight months? Well, I think a lot changed in the last six or eight months, but a lot didn't change prior to COVID. You know, things were like relatively flat still, and we were sort of banging our head into the same hole in the wall, if you will. And um, so uh, I think uh, for the motorcycle industry and um, not to sound, you know, callous about all the the loss in the world that the pandemic has, has caused, but um, the, uh, uh, the motorcycle industry has largely benefited um, from this pandemic because of where it sits sort of psychologically. You're outdoors, you're, you're by yourself, you're wearing, literally wearing protective gear. And, um, and so motorcycling became a, um, an alternative that was very attractive. Uh, add in the bonus of, of the that there's a lot less traffic on the road, uh, and um, and people have time to sort of go into the shop and mess around with their motorcycles. There's been a bump in aftermarket sales. Uh, I spoke with a friend of mine uh, who owns Motion Pro Tools, and his sales were through the roof because all of a sudden people were working on their old bikes again and getting them out of the garage to, to go ride. So I know apparel sales have been up. Um, we've seen acquisitions in, uh, you know, Komodo, for instance, bought Revzilla, which is, which is a really interesting uh, purchase on their part. Um, so generally speaking, the fact that the transportation industry was largely protected from the shutdown uh, as far as an essential service goes, and motorcycling was was part of that. The fact that motorcycling is recreational and approachable and you can fit it in your garage and that sort of thing actually ended up sort of playing into a, a positive space in what is otherwise a very you know desperate and challenging time for all of us. When this happened, I think a lot of people were looking at it and thinking, oh no, this is the end of the motorcycle industry. I mean, if everything shuts down, I mean, the manufacturers shut down. In a lot of cases, people were encouraged not to ride, to stay at home. You could almost spell the end for things and think, okay, this is finally the nail in the coffin. But in, in fact, as you've mentioned, we've had the opposite effect. And, and, and I found the same thing. The people that I've talked to, you know, doing my interviews, I keep hearing of incredible sales, unbelievable, record-breaking sales this year. And the initiatives up until then, as you said, were flat. You know, there was there was big push on, um, we talked about uh, smaller bikes, uh, you mm-hmm. and I did, and how that was coming up. Certainly women riders has been a huge push for women riders, the women riders that, that are out there pushing that they're out there riding and encouraging others to ride, as well as the manufacturers getting behind that. But, but none of that seemed to have the effect that COVID did. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, 
you know, there's nothing like a global crisis to get you off your ass, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> in one way in, or in some ways, <laughs> in one way, yeah. And so, um, you know, I, it, things are going to be different, you know, going forward. I think it's going to be different in society uh, in large. Um, you know, obviously, uh, like I would hate to be in the commercial real estate market right now. Things are, you know, are, are, you know we work or that sort of thing where it's encouraging people to work in an office place because that's that's fundamentally going to change. And if a, a reasonable, let's just say 25% of the professional working population gets to now work at home and they no longer have to commute, they probably earn back, you know, anywhere from, you know, an hour to two hours of their day. And if that means that you can jump on your motorcycle and enjoy a little cruise in the evening, you know, that's that's good for us, obviously. So mm -hmm. um, but I also think that just the psychology of consumers is changing and that sort of wanting to be in control of your own life. Uh, there's uh, there's precious few tact tactile ways of proving that to yourself. Um, and one of the greatest ones, obviously for us is, is, you know, having a set of handlebars in your, in your hand. So bicycling sales went through the roof, which is a good precursor to motorcycle sales. Uh, and, um, and I think that in our post pandemic world, the opportunity to be outdoors and to enjoy that and be in control of your situation is going to be very attractive. Um, and again, as, as, as I probably said, you know, a few years ago, our goal isn't necessarily to turn, you know, 75% of the population into motorcycle riders. The motorcycle industry, if it just went from 7% to 8%, would be really stoked. I mean, that's really good numbers there, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and that's that's really what we've done. I think we've seen a lot of people who are sitting on the fence in motorcycle land, you know, come over to this. Now the real challenge is going to be how do we retain those riders? How do we continue to entertain those riders so that there's not a precipitous drop-off um, come next summer when all of a sudden they're having to re-up their registration or, you know, buy new gear or uh, spend money on insurance and they're they're choosing to get rid of the motorcycle instead of continuing with us. Yeah, and that's exactly where I was going with my next question. The stats show that there was a large percentage of the purchases that were that were done this year in this in this sort of boost or boom rather we've had mm -hmm. in the motor industry that are either new riders, new totally to the motorcycle scene, or returning riders that have left the scene for a long time and somehow come back. And that's my question. I mean, are, are we going to look at next spring or maybe the spring afterwards and find that we've got uh, the used motorcycle market is going to drop because there'll be so many bikes for sale and so many people abandoning it? Or you mentioned mindset in there. I mean, is is there a mindset shift going on there, you know, with the population and why? Like, would you think that the, the pandemic has done that? Uh, yes, I think the pandemic definitely did that. There's a, you know, a huge uptick in, in sales for, uh, uh, RVs, towable RVs are, are going crazy. Um, you know, Thor Industries stock is, is climbing um, because uh, they are uh, having to build a lot of units to satisfy that market. So, you know, as, a, as the corollary, there's going to be a lot of used motorcycles that will be out there, but that means that there's more, there, the inventory of fantastic low mileage used motorcycles 
um, is more approachable than it's ever been. So we're, mm. by pulling the price point down, um, we can get more people into motorcycling. So I think it's whether or not, um, you know, we uh, show the ability to retain riders who came into our world uh, recently or who re-entered our world recently, perhaps, um, it's incumbent on us to um, continue to sort of preach the gospel of motorcycling and, and what it can give you in your life and not get lazy just because, you know, we managed to sell a bunch of bikes. Um, I think that uh, I think that our industry, frankly, does get lazy uh, and um, or perhaps it's the other side. Maybe they're scared. Maybe they're scared to try something new, try something different. And if ever there was an excuse to try something different, it's it's the reaction to you know, an unprecedented, you know, uh, a time on, on the planet. What was missing though? Looking back, deconstructing what just happened, we should be able to learn a lesson from this. The, the industry, as we said, had tried for years to invigorate the industry and, and bring in new riders, interest people, but it wasn't happening. So what did we learn from this? Well, you know, I think what we learned is that um, fundamentally advertising has changed, uh, you know, in these in these years, a number of motorcycle magazines, traditional outlets have have changed um, to online only. Um, Cycle World magazine was sold to a company that um, largely does power sports financing. So here's a finance company that says, oh, we need to create content so we can draw more customers so we can finance their motorcycles in the same way that Revzilla created content to sell retail stuff. Um, you know, here's a finance company that's absorbed that in. Well, the, you know, the editorial content of that is probably going to change the way that our category reaches motorcyclists uh, is going to change. And we have to be a lot smarter about that. And uh, in my opinion, we have to be, um, we have to look past our fender to use a, you know, a track day analogy. You have to look uh, further than, than just the apex ahead of you. Uh, and we, we still don't do that. We still don't do that in a, in a truly compelling categorical way. Um, as an industry, we don't sit in a room and talk about, you know, the 10 year vision for motorcycling. And that's a huge miss on, on our part. Um, and, uh, and, and something that has to change. So as far as learnings go, I see, I see huge growth in, for instance, Portia Taylor and black girls ride magazine, uh, Southern California based, uh, online magazine, uh, that, uh, aims, specifically at urban female riders, but it's not sport bike riders or cruiser riders. Or it's anybody who's got, you know, two wheels underneath them um, is welcome. And the community that Portia has built is phenomenal. Uh, she coordinated a big ride across the country to, you know, to encourage people to vote, for instance. So I think that the channels to communicate to consumers are are getting much more diverse um, in how you do that. Um, when I look at a guy like Shane Connolly, who has a fantastic um, video series on YouTube called How, how to Wrench with the number two, How to Wrench, um, he's built a huge community. Uh, 
uh, Brian Carroll, the director for Why We Ride, the film, he has hundreds of thousands of people following him on our social media, um, which is higher than the su- subscription rate of any magazine currently or any motorcycle magazine currently in print. So I think that, um, frankly, it means for those of us who are involved in marketing in the motorcycle industry, the opportunities have never been greater for creativity and for outreach, but it's critical that it's authentic and, and comes from uh, a place of enthusiasm. Otherwise, it's just going to get lost. That's interesting you said authentic there, because I was thinking when you were talking about the media and you were talking about some magazines being purchased by a finance company or a, a magazine, mm-hmm. it, it sort of changes the the nature of the of the content. And you even mentioned the content is probably going to change with that. And, and same as what it does with social media. Like, for instance, if, we, if I go to that that magazine, the idea of it, it almost changes it from from a pull to a push. In other words, there was a time when people were enthusiastic about motorcycling and then they seek out things to, uh, to, to feed their, their interest. And with that though, that's almost making a push where they're generating things uh, to try and generate interest, to try and attract new people. And then when we look at social media, social media is often, well, I mean, it, it could be c- construed as, as somewhat shallow because you have followers and then you charge companies to produce content on there. So, I mean, isn't that doing just that, you know, what you're describing there? We're losing some integrity as, as we go to these avenues. Yeah, I mean, we can. And it's, it's you know, it's a church and state sort of thing. You know, you have to keep sales. Um, uh, I mean, sales are critical for any business to continue to function, right? Um, my old boss, Steve Minetto at Polaris Industries used to say, everybody's in the sales department. Uh, regardless if you're in marketing or service or whatever, you're in the sales department. Uh, and so that, that's, that's critical function for business. Um, but fighting for that authenticity, fighting um, uh, for an enthusiast perspective in how the content is made, but being able to adapt, that's, that's the new religion. You know, you're not going to uh, go do a traditional advertising buy. I'm going to buy 18 insertions in Cycle World magazine and I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to get a discount on the rate and I need an ad agency to book that. Those times are dead. Um, and um, so that, that content coming out of whether it's a finance company or a retail organization or whatever um, has to be more authentic because the audience is more cynical and the audience will turn around to independent, um, resources. Uh, Fort nine out of, you know, Canada is a fantastic job of, you know, of creating really compelling video content and print content. Um, and, um, there's just a lot more options out there. So if you don't do a great, like I look at uh, like Rocky Mountain ATV, for instance, they, they clearly are making videos to sell the stuff they represent, but they, they wear it on the surface They're I mean, their bikes are all labeled up with Rocky Mountain ATV graphics and, and so on and so forth, but they're not hiding behind the fact that they want to sell you this stuff, but the, but, but they, um, they represent it so well and so confidently, uh, and, the bikes that they're putting these things onto are clearly like real motorcycles, not just some pretty, you know, dolled up show bike, but they're out getting them dirty and splashing through mud and riding in a beautiful part of the world. Um, that as a buyer, I'm compelled to, you know, to purchase something from these guys because they must know what they're talking about. And they're showing me that they, they do on their video. 
Um, so I don't think you have to uh, completely separate that, but I think that that if you start to give up the authenticity and if it starts to get into a pure sales mentality and um, the business end uh, of a brand starts to uh, trump the decisions of the enthusiast end, that's, that's going to be the downfall for any business. We're going to take just a short break and uh, I'm going to tell you about a couple of things, but stay with us. The conversation keeps going. The Atlas Throttle Lock is a beautifully designed piece of machinery that clamps onto your handlebar right between that, that small slot in uh, between your throttle grip and the clamp. It's got two buttons on it, one for engage, one for disengage. It's dead simple. Here's how I use it. Anytime I want to relax my grip, I just move my thumb over and press the engage button. That's it. My throttle's held in place at that point. Now, if I want to add some power, all I do is just twist the throttle. I don't have to touch the buttons at all. Just twist the throttle as I normally would. And then when I let go, it holds in place again at that new position. Same for slowing down. Back the throttle off, release, and it's held in place. When I choose to turn it off, I move my thumb over the other button and I press it, done. It disengages and it's ready to go the next time. And those buttons, they've got a solid, satisfying feeling to them. You know, like they feel like quality. The whole thing says quality. And the nice thing is you can move this from bike to bike because it fits most bikes. So unlike, you know, your heated grips, you put a set of heated grips on a bike and you decide to sell it, there goes your heated grips. While with the Atlas Throttle Lock, it stays with you. Change your ride with the Atlas Throttle Lock. The website is atlasthrottlelock.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there. You heard them in, on Adventure Rider Radio. atlasthrottlelock.com. On the uh, last week's episode, the previous one to this one, we did a segment on visibility. And we spoke with the owner of Cyclops Adventure Sports, where we learned about lighting and a bunch of things about terminology of, of lighting and what you should be looking for when you're buying lighting. And I asked Daryl, the owner of Cyclops, to come on the show because... I respect his knowledge of lighting and his, and his passion for what he does. The riders and, and the whole company came uh, from a passion for riding. As a matter of fact, he just solved a problem for himself of not being able to see to ride his dirt bike at night. And that sort of led into the building of Cyclops. Their motto is see and be seen. And that's just what they've accomplished with, the, with what they do. They make these little two-inch lights called um, the Aurora they're 19 watt lights, but man, they punch a hole in the darkness. And I know this because I have them on my bike, uh, like a huge spotlight. You'd think they were just a huge spotlight. There's these small things and, and they're so small that, or they're small enough, I guess, I guess I should say that they're easy to mount in a way that they don't block my signals or anything else. Cause on my bike, that's, that's one problem I have is trying to get something to mount without blocking everything. And they're out of the way when the bike hits the ground. So they don't get smashed. They make LED replacement headlights, loads of other lights. They make the Evo turn signal inserts, which turns your front signals into um, super bright auxiliary lights, which double as signals, obviously. And in the back, it's super bright brake lights. Again, signals as well. Really stunning system. I have that on my bike as well. Anyway, their website is cyclopsadventuresports.com. Don't forget, anytime you're dealing with them, even if you're inquiring, just mention to them that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. cyclopsadventuresports.com. You've tried at some point to get a, a, a seized bolt undone with a, a short wrench or a short ratchet. 
you usually have to get more leverage to get it to work. And if the ratchet or wrench is of low quality, if it's a cheap, crappy tool, they'll often slip and break just because the tool is poorly designed. Well, that same thought process goes into foot pegs. Leverage, the larger foot peg, gives you that added leverage that you need to maneuver your heavy adventure bike. And without it, you sometimes you just can't do it. And you certainly can't do it as easy. You make a, a, an easy job tough without the, the proper tool. Same goes for the quality um, in the foot pegs, not just the manufacturing, but the design itself. A, a well-designed foot peg will allow you to, to access your brake and your shift lever in sort of a natural way. And all of this goes into play into a, a well-designed and well-manufactured foot peg. IMS Products has experience back to 1976 making products for uh, for motorcyclists. They have a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs for you to choose from. Do yourself a favor. Try the IMS Products foot pegs. IMSproducts.com is the website. And don't forget to throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. If that is recognizable to the to the end user, I mean things are very complicated now. Yes, as, as we're talking about. But if you go back to the heady days of magazines, it was it was sort of driven by there. There was always a um, a sort of a, div, a division in the magazine itself between sales and editorial. And editorial had an ethical approach. They had in their minds they they were there to produce honest, real content. And of course, the ad side of it, they want to sell ads. So they're always trying to to get the editorial department to maybe, oh, give a little extra or say something nice, which would rarely happen. I would hope would never happen if they have their ethics in the right place. That's gone, though, when you have it in a bunch of different outlets where you have one person rising up and and becoming a you know getting a large social media following so you don't, it's really difficult to tell if the message is legitimate or is it only because it's being paid no i think i think two things there one is i think you're discounting the audience i think the uh, the consumer audience um, is very savvy to modern marketing techniques. You know, there's, there's certain things I'm, you know, I'm a single guy without kids, but if I start talking about diapers on a regular basis, all of a sudden in, in the little sidebar on my Amazon account is going to be like bulk diapers. Right. So, so I think consumers are a lot savvier than, than we give them uh, credit for. Uh, and that sort of sixth sense of, am I being sold to is, um, is, is considerably sharper. Um, and then the other side of the coin is is consumers want you to be uh, completely committed to that thing that you're selling, and you better stand behind it, and it better be good. And and if I have a problem with it, you better be able to, um, you know, take it back or give me the ne- next level thing. I mean, buyers are are smarter, right? Because they have more options. Um, so to me, it just it goes back to how do you run your business? Um, you know. I not only have a garage full of motorcycles, but I've got a wall with a bunch of guitars on it. And I, I, I listened to, um, a podcast with, I'm blanking on his name, but the guy who runs and started a uh, Sweetwater, um, uh, which is an, an online music sale. So they're not, they're not the least expensive, um, they're a premium kind of a thing, but their their customer service is so good 
that I'm absolutely willing to pay that premium for it. And I know they want to sell me stuff. And I, here I am as a consumer, I want to buy that stuff. Mm. Uh, and they do such a good job of it. So that's, I mean, to me, you know, going back to an earlier question, the, you know, the learnings from our industry is we have to be smarter. We have to be quicker on our feet. We have to be um, true to this category because that's what the consumer wants. They don't want to just be lied to uh, and, um, and they don't want a generic message. They want a message that is specific, you know, for them. Right. So um, that's, uh, that's my major encouragement to all the companies uh, that, that I either chat with or, you know, friends who are, who are in at different companies is to keep that authenticity going. Cause that's, that's, it's hard to fake, you know, and the second you get caught faking it, man, it's over. So you even mentioned uh, there, you mentioned com- you wouldn't want to be in commercial real estate. If you look at that, there, there's some things that have changed. I mean, obviously there's tons of online shopping going on be- because of COVID that has affected the motorcycle industry uh, as well as every other industry, but also they've started this, this thing called DTC or direct to consumer. Can you talk about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to, uh, you know, some some of the brands that I've worked with, um, let's say uh, like Quinn Helmets, for instance, uh, they make a high tech um, smart helmet that basically is a shock sensing uh, system built into it, and it can notify somebody if you have an accident and blah blah blah. They are uh, they're in a very dense category of you know premium motorcycle helmets. There's no shortage of premium helmets out there um, to choose from, and um, they are setting up dealers, but the bulk of their sales are direct because they are the experts on their own product, and they've created something unique in the marketplace uh, that. Um, can't really be replicated other than, you know, duct taping a spot unit to your head. And so they have success there. Um, I think that uh, when you have, uh, like, for instance, I've I've been setting up a Suzuki DR650 as like sort of my uh, uh, apocalypse adventure bike, if you will. And um, there's a company called uh, Green Chili Adventures out of Uh, I think they're Oregon and they have like some really unique stuff and they just sell direct. And it's one of those things where if you're good with Google search and you are represented well on forums and and places like that, or, or, you know, uh, or you do some targeted Facebook advertising that your distribution model is basically right out, right out of your own garage, if you want it to be. And, um, and so that really is an opportunity for a lot of brands to have smart expert discussions with consumers about about their products. Well, uh, Green Chili is one of our sponsors, actually, has been for, for many years. Oh, um, cool, yeah. So, so I know them well. But And, and Quinn Helmets, of course, we had Timothy Calhoun on here some time ago, their VP mm-hmm. of sales, um, talking about different things. But that's aftermarket stuff. What about the dealers though? Because from what I understand, I was just reading that there was some dealers or not dealers, sorry, manufacturers that have started direct to consumer things. And I know there was talk about this, like even in the automotive industry, there was um, sort of with the internet came that idea of, of maybe we can, you know, sell directly to the customer. But I think with COVID, there was the idea that they could get the bike ready and ship it to. And I can't remember which manufacturers were doing it. 
Yeah, I um, I know that um, California Scooter Company CSC has been effectively doing that. You can go onto Amazon and buy. Uh, there's some fairly cheesy motorcycles that are for sale that basically just get shipped to you in a box, and you have to put it together. And um, I'm not sure how you actually pull off registering that sort of thing, but I think that those are low volume enough that they're getting away with it. Tesla's clearly been leading the way uh, in in a direct to consumer model, but the, the hoops you have to jump through. Ironically, they're they're you know Elon's moving to Austin here to be my neighbor, and um, he's coming to be your neighbor. That's yeah, yeah. Neat. We're we're gonna share we're gonna share a wall. I have to ask him <laughs> to keep it quiet in the morning, but um, but anyway, uh, the um, uh, that in in Texas to buy a Tesla, you actually it actually gets registered in California and then it gets transferred to you. Um, in the state of Texas, you don't buy it directly. Right. Mm. And, um, and so there's these like sort of hoops you have to jump through, uh, in order for that model to work. Um, I think that motorcycling being a, um, entertainment function, uh, rather than just a pure transportation function. And I think that because there aren't independent, aren't as many independent shops where you can go get your thing fixed, there's not like an NTB of motorcycling, for instance, a national tire and battery where, where they just do like the most basic maintenance that most cars need. Um, there's not that equivalent in motorcycling um, that the direct to consumer model is um I think is going to be important for the off-road side of things. But I think when it comes to the amount of regulation, the warranty, um, the, uh, the access to service, uh, that kind of thing, uh, there's a lot of hoops to jump through in the, in the, in the U S government, at least in order to pull that off. Um, and, uh, and one of the things, you know, I was working with Indian Motorcycle and one of the battles that we had to have with uh, customers that we were trying to draw from the Harley Davidson side of things is the Harley guy would say, oh, well, you know, there's a dealer just down the street from me. So that that ability to have a dealer around the corner is, I think, more important to uh, motorcycle riders in general uh, than it is to... Um, uh, than is to automotive-minded clientele, even on the enthusiast end of things, um, and uh, so that's just that's going to be a tough a tough battle. I would love for there to be brands to have that kind. Vulcan is a, a new electric um, motorcycle company based in uh, Round Rock, Texas, just down the street from me, and um, you know one of their things that they're exploring is like a direct to consumer, um, you know, model, but um, you know, even though, you know, Elon's b building his new factory near the airport here in Austin, um, in Texas, you can't do that. You can't sell direct. So I think that there's a lot of legislative hurdles to go through there. And I don't think it necessarily serves us um, in the way that we want. I think that um, we want that community. We want that um, uh, camaraderie. Uh, and if we go back to um, the motorcycle dealer as a place you go to hang out and get your cup of coffee and we create those sort of destination 
places, then um, a, a certain percentage of motorcyclists are really going to find that a draw again. Uh, and um, it might need to be an outside coffee shop in a, you know, in a trailer in a safe part of the parking lot or something like that. But at least, you know, those, those are all your people, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and you, do you see that happening now? Because from what I see with dealers, dealers tend to be you know packed tight with a combination of motorcycles, UTVs, ATVs, and maybe uh, some sort of water sports things, and and it doesn't really doesn't feel ever like the place that you're just going to hang out. Yeah, you know, I mean, you're right, and I and there is when it's rows of headlights and handlebars, and and you can't tell one brand from the other. Um, you know, there's definitely a loss of that, but when you go into, uh, down the road for me is a uh, ride now power sports and they are, uh, you know, they're growing fast. They've, they've purchased many of the multi-line dealers, um, on one side or, or probably three quarters of the building are all the Japanese brands. I think Polaris is in there, in there, maybe Can-Am. And they're all just kind of mishmashed together on one big floor. Um, then there's a clear line and then there's Triumph motorcycles and it's only Triumph and they're all sort of in rows where you can see it. And then there's a clear line and then it's BMW motorcycles and the BMW space, I'll give them credit, is beautifully designed. Bikes are, there's room to walk around the bikes. There's the accessories associated with that particular motorcycle are sitting right there. Um, so as you walk through the store, you definitely feel like chilling in the BMW section, whether you're a BMW nut or not. Uh, and so I think that, uh, brands can help do that. And there's probably two types of dealers, the, you know, broadly speaking, there's the, um, you know, let's get it out the door, uh, discount mentality. Um, and then there's, you know, some of the community mentality and, um, the rise of sort of motorcycle themed coffee shops. Um, around the country is, you know, is telling there's, there was one up in, um, Milwaukee I visited. I think there's a new one down in, in, in Atlanta. Uh, I said good brew. I can't remember anyway, but, um, that is one of those things where it's like, there is this desire for community and brands who get it. Deus, there's a, there's a good example. They do that in, um, near the, near, uh, LAX. Um, you know, that's just a place you just kind of want to hang out and you want to be there. And then you end up buying a, you know, $50 t-shirt. So, yeah. And are you seeing these coffee shops you're talking about? They're not dealers. They're actually just coffee shops that sort of have the, yeah, they're, they're coffee shops. But, but, you know, when, when I look at my friend, Rick Fairless from Strokers up in Dallas, he, you know, he's got a traditional motorcycle shop, but on the same lot is his restaurant. He has a restaurant. He used to have a tattoo parlor in there. And when that was a, a big deal, but, uh, he, um, you know, he understands that, you know, motorcycling is entertainment and on, on a nice weekend in Dallas, there'll be hundreds. It's not even like a special weekend or a charity fun run or anything. It's like literally just it's Saturday and there'll be just hundreds and hundreds of motorcycles all hanging out, you know, mm-hmm. uh, having a beer or, or playing pool or just, you know, having an impromptu parking lot, you know, custom bike contest. So, so it's, um, we have in a, in a way because of the pandemic, we've lost motorcycling community. Um, and that has gone away. There haven't, you know, Sturgis was, was the only rally that sort of continued regardless. 
Um, so I think there will be a desire for community. Um, and I can foresee that, you know, when we're to the point of 70% of the population being vaccinated and, and that herd immunity thing starts to actually have traction by next fall, um, that there are going to be a lot of people who want to go to an adventure bike rally or want to go to a dual sport, you know, meetup or, mm -hmm. uh, or start doing track days again and, and that sort of thing. And there's going to be such a hunger for community that if, if dealers and, and OEMs don't sponsor that stuff, then it's just going to shoot right past them into, you know, parallel markets. Right. And they should be able to do with the, the profits made from this year. I mean, with having a banner year. Absolutely. And I get why I get why brands are going to want to be conservative and put some of that money in the bank because this was such an anomaly. Mm -hmm. But um, it's, you know, it's what we were talking about before. There's going to be more motorcyclists out there and, uh, you know, motorcycles under 10 years old out there than than there have been in the in the past several decades. And so uh, it's you know, we have to be smart and aggressive about this. It doesn't mean you have to crap a bunch of money out, but it just means you have to be um, uh, aware and, and lean in on positive opportunities. Um, you know, Kelly, I don't know if you know the name Kelly Yazdi, but um, uh, she and her business partner, partner Rachel, uh, have started the, the Ride Wild Collective. And it's, it's a growth out of the um, Wild Gypsy Tour. They changed the name from Wild Gypsy Tour just because of the, you know, the branding challenges that Gypsy brings up. But um, the uh, the Ride Wild Collective is essentially going to be a series of events that are female focused. And again, like Porsche's thing, it doesn't matter what type of motorcycle you're riding. Just, you know, come be part of this world. And for brands to not see the great opportunity that's there and these like sort of micro influencers who are actually doing things, not just talking about it, but doing things, um, then that's a huge loss. So there are examples of brands that, that are starting to get it and they're putting some money behind it. So uh, I, I look forward to seeing how those pan out. Are there any brands right now that you, you think that get it at this point that are sort of leading edge? Uh, yeah, I think that... Um, I will give credit to my old bosses at, at Polaris Industries, a woman named Pam Kermish, uh, who's greatly assisted by uh, another woman named Joey Hall. Um, they are they were put in, tar in charge of their own uh, you know group that that reports directly to the CEO. Um, that's about new rider initiatives and new, you know, off-road community activities and stuff like that. So, so they put together a uh, group of uh, women riders, women influencers, and in, in all things power sports, and they're putting money behind that and in uh, content behind that and encouragement behind it. So, so I'll give them, you know, credit for that effort. Um, but uh, you know, Polaris doesn't really resonate with you know, dirt bike people or adventure bike people or, you know, there, uh, there's massive gaps where, where there's just opportunity for the Hondas, Yamahas and, and Harleys to come in and do stuff, you know. Um, I wish, I wish I could run the, the Harley Davidson Pan America program because I think that's not only an opportunity to, um, you know, expand what Harley Davidson means to the, um, 
consumer base out there, but it's also an opportunity to lean on community, which was a huge part of Harley Davidson's DNA Mm -hmm. and to do it in the most compelling way. And I would personally challenge Harley Davidson to, um, to commit to a 10 day period next spring, not next spring, maybe two springs from around 2022 to have the biggest national adventure bike rally, regardless of brand, invite BMW, KTM, Husqvarna, you know, uh, hell, get, let gas gas be out there. All, you know, all the brands, just get them out into a beautiful place and show the muscle and might of what the Harley Davidson brand can be to an entirely new audience for them. But in, um, but having some, um, framework around it that they're very comfortable with in terms of, you know, community and, and, and how you bring those people together. Well, you mentioned before about, you know, the industry as a whole doesn't really look at motorcycles, uh, or the motorcycle industries, you know, 10 years in advance, they're not doing that sort of work. That's kind of difficult to do, isn't it? Because you've got a bunch of private companies no. that all have their own initiative and, and no. they're going to go and do things. And if Polaris goes out and spends a bunch of money, that's done on their own. That, that's sort of almost done in private. It's First off, it's not difficult to do, okay? Um, Harley Davidson went and bought Stasic, the, the electric, you know, balance bike brand, okay? Um, that's a very forward-looking thing. If they continue to fund that brand correctly, it is incredibly easy for Polaris Industries to decide to sponsor the uh, Strider Bikes All Kids Bike Initiative and to say that within 10 years, every elementary school in the state of Minnesota is going to have um, a balanced bike program. Therefore, every little boy and girl in elementary school is going to learn to ride and balance on two wheels. So even if we, even if only, you know, 15% of those kids continue into motorcycling, um, they all have an appreciation and an understanding of what it is to be on two wheels, to balance on two wheels, the fundamental thing of motorcycling. So it is not difficult for Honda to decide to fund Every elementary school in Torrance, California, I think there's 18 of them. I looked it up um, with one of these balanced bike programs and for them to do their own research with their own staff's kids who go to these schools to see how easy it is to positively and fundamentally impact motorcycling with not a huge invest investment. Um, so I, I absolutely reject the idea that that, um, that it's too hard to look into the future. Um, I think, in fact, it's too easy. And, um, and people just don't want to do it. It's just they're too lazy or they don't want to commit a, you know, a, a small you know, part of their marketing budget or sales budget or, 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 or to do the charity work or whatever. Why would, they, I think, why would they not, though? I mean, if it could equate to sales down the road, growth, industry growth and, and product line growth, why wouldn't they do it? Because largely speaking, the industry is based on um, quarterly numbers, mm. right? And so um, we knew from our Polaris experience that if you didn't make your first quarter numbers, it was 
damn near impossible to make it up for the whole rest of the year, you know? And so that focus on what's in the warehouse, what's coming out of the factory, that, you know, again, going back to Polaris saying, like, everyone's in the sales department, that that focus on the quarterly numbers, particularly with public companies that have to do quarterly reports and, you know, and, and that kind of thing, um, that is a... Uh, uh, that's a real detriment to the opportunities we have to greatly expand motorcycling to everybody. And that we literally can fix the power sports industry in, in 10 years. And, um, and that's not a long time. If you were to look at a superbike from 10 years ago, that's a fast motorcycle with a lot of technology and with, you know, a lot of power and quality and blah, blah, blah. So owning a 10-year-old, you know, Harley-Davidson touring bike or a 10-year-old um, Honda doesn't seem like a stretch to any reasonable motorcyclist. So as a category, how can we not look forward 10 years and do a little bit more to facilitate our own industry. It is not hard to do. And I absolutely reject that, that, um, uh, that it's out of the norm. It's absolutely, we should all be doing that in our own, in our own way. It's, it's $4,000 to sponsor one elementary school for five years with mm. an all kids bike program, $4,000 that ultimately, um, those bicycles are used as a training tool in the same way a rack of basketballs you know, is sitting in the gymnasium. There's a rack of bicycles um, uh, sitting in gym class. And every single child who comes through that system for the next five years is going to learn how to ride and balance on two wheels. How is, how is that not adopted by every single brand or media outlet or, or, you know, the motorcycle industry council or the AMA? I mean, it's stunning to me that we don't, um, all get behind a program like that because even if only 50% of the schools were adopted in the next uh, 10 years, we've essentially fixed motorcycling. Well, that's, um, that's interesting for, for a lot of different aspects. One thing is what you're saying there, that's not just a problem with motorcycling. That's actually a problem with a lot of things is that, um, that short term, uh, financial look where they're looking at quarters or, or even if they're looking at years, rather than looking at many years down the road, people don't want to, companies don't want to necessarily invest because everyone wants to look good today. And, and I think that that limits a, a lot of industries. I agree with you. I agree with you. It, it, it's really hard when, you know, and, uh, it, it's, it's really hard when you look at, um, sentiment versus profitability that the, you know, the accountants win like, you know, every single time. Right. Mm. Um, but, if we were um, if we were farmers and we were um, over using our land, uh, we would be called idiots for for doing that. You know, if you don't allow the soil to replenish, if you don't treat the soil uh, appropriately, then your yield in years and years to come is going to suffer. And that is that is we don't we are not. Uh, you know, fertilizing um, our, our our own opportunities to create uh, uh, a new rider base out there, and it's it is incredibly easy to do. So uh, I, you know, anybody who's listening and wants to 
put their hand up and say, hey, let's do this. I mean, you just go to allkidsbike.org and the entire program is laid out. It's literally turnkey for, you know, for any school. It's, it's not a lot of heavy lifting to do. And, and if you think about it, eight families at $500 a piece can, can fund, you know, can fund their local school for five years. That's pretty amazing. Well, even $4,000 for a sponsor to pick up. And that's, that's a a small amount, even compared to what they would spend on say some of these rallies that might only attract 65, 85, 150 people. You know, they, they put a lot of money to target those people at some of the small rallies. Right. And I will say that like, if, uh, you know, if, um, uh, let's pick a brand, say Revit were to hold a, you know, a rally, uh, of, you know, people who are into Revit apparel, um, that's already a, a premium level customer. You're going to have cool bikes showing up. And if Revit were to say, hey, we're going to do a $2,000 matching uh, charity donation every time we get together and, and everybody donates 10 or 15 bucks, then you're going to get to that $2,000 pretty quick. And Revit can turn around and donate to the local school. And then they can do it again next year and donate to the next local school and so on and so forth. If Fox Apparel were to do an all kids bike, um, you know, line of clothing where the proceeds go to fund, um, you know, the poorest schools in Southern California and start working up the ladder from the bottom up, um, that's, that's an easy decision to make. And it's literally all you have to do is just decide, well, we're going to do that. And, um, and within a, in a very short period of time, from a business standpoint, um, we're going to create that next generation of riders. And, and it's easy. It's literally that easy. What do you think is going to happen with, with this new surge that we've had this year, these new riders or returning riders? Are we going to see a trend that's going to go into commuting? Or, I mean, are these people going to become, I know a lot of people working from home and probably still will work from home after this is over. Do you see that changing? Do you see us becoming like, you know, like an Asia sort of thing where you, you've got every person out there riding uh, scooters and motorcycles? I don't. Um, I don't. I mean, you know, it's such, there's so much variety in this country. It's, you know, it's hard to make a blanket statement like that. But if there was free motorcycle parking in downtown Boston, I guarantee you there would be a lot more motorcycles riding into, into the city. Right. Mm. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and there's, there's no reason there shouldn't be. Um, I do think that one of the significant challenges we're going to have is self-driving cars because motorcycles aren't going to be self-riding, um, you know, BMW's experiment aside, they're not going to be self-riding, um, uh, fundamental that, you know, there's, there's well, no point in that, point? but there yeah. will be, there will be self-driving cars. And then the anomaly in traffic will be self-operated vehicles, both automobiles and, and motorcycles and semi-trucks and things like that. And, um, uh, the insurance liability for each one of those categories is going to go up. So I foresee that if we don't have a lot of motorcyclists out there who are getting trained, who are getting, who are out there riding and, and con- continue to have that experience, that eventually it's not necessarily going to be that, that um, you know, interest wanes. I think that a lot of people are going to get priced out from an insurance standpoint uh, because being the anomaly on the road means it's always your fault when there's an accident. You know, mm-hmm. if you're the if you're the only self-driving vehicle in a world of autonomous stuff, I guarantee you that the uh, you know the Googles of the world out there have way way more lawyers that are going to crush you when it comes to you know trying to trying to uh, 
uh, oh, I see uh, fight a case like that. You're not even yeah. talking technology. I thought you were referring to just the fact that the technology will be better drivers. You're just saying that even just the the legal representation will be yeah. there to crush you. Yeah, yeah, that makes yeah sense. exactly. Yeah. And so, so that you know, for us to um, to foster community, for us to continue that enthusiasm, um, it is. Uh, uh, you know, many small events. It is being creative with, uh, you know, supporting women's riding groups, with supporting vintage motorcycle meetups. It, it is that positive community effect that um, that can continue this trend. Uh, it is not about hardware. It is about people. And when OEMs embrace that, then all of us will succeed. Robert, do you know what the stats are right now, the up-to-date stats as far as motorcycle sales and how that breaks down? No, I don't. Um, the uh, Motorcycle Industry Council, you know, uh, you, you kind of have to be a member with them in order to see a lot of that stuff. And mm-hmm. then you basically sign a lot of documents saying you, that you're not going to share it publicly. So um, uh, motorcycle sales are up. Period. Okay, uh, you, you uh, uh, you're seeing that in insurance sales and in financing, you know, and, and heck, all you got to do is walk into a big box store and there, the, the there's considerably fewer motorcycles on the floor than there have been. Um, so the, the all of those numbers are up. I know that um, off road numbers are are up. Um, and that speaks to family riding. If, you know, if mom and dad are working at home, then, you know, getting all the camping kit together to go for a, a weekend of, of riding uh, isn't as daunting a task as it is when, you know, everybody's commuting and, and running around. So, um, uh, so all of that is up. Uh, and again, I'll, I'll, you know, I keep leaning on it, but it's that, uh, that authentic community that is going to uh uh, continue to grow business for all of us. You um, you talked a bit about there about autonomous vehicles and, and how that may affect us as motorcyclists. But the other thing that, that is coming up, and I think everyone can see it now, is electric vehicles, electric motorcycles. Mm-hmm. We've got all kinds of manufacturers out there now that are doing it. There's promotion being done. And I think we, a lot of us can sort of see, okay, this is this is going to come. Whether you like it or not, this is going to come. What, what do you think about the, um, the riding of electric bicycles and their connection between that and electric motorcycle? Because I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, electric bicycles are becoming more popular and that the jump is not very big. Um, I think that if we as a power sports category don't fully embrace electric assist bicycles, then we will essentially enable it to become a parallel um, and separate business. Uh, and, um, you know, and to go back and like, where's an example of that in our own history is that, that, um, if we had decided that side-by-sides were not power sports because they had steering wheels. And so therefore that category would have started to be sold by, you know, Toro and John Deere and, you know, cat and brands like that. Um, then power sports would be a fraction of what it is today. Side-by-sides have absolutely saved the broader power sports um, business. So um, I think that in the same way that if, a, if somebody were to look at a slingshot and go, oh, that's not a motorcycle, it shouldn't be allowed in here, 
and you are therefore cutting off a consumer who wants to spend $25,000, $30,000 on that unit. If we do that same sort of thing with power assist bicycles and we say, oh, those are bicycles, they don't belong in here, then we are absolutely clueless. We, you know, the, the uh, you know, our, our core religion is, is balance on two wheels. So we should be embracing all the way down into Strider bikes. And I'll give credit to dealers who stock Strider bikes for holidays and things like that. That's, that's absolutely what we should be doing. Um, but we can't, you know, just let them disappear into bicycle stores because I guarantee you that bicycle store is going to look at a $10,000 electric bicycle in the same way that a power sports store is going to look at a $30,000, you know, uh, Polaris Razor XP Turbo. They're like, oh man, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of margin. That's a lot of accessories. That's a, that's a good service business. And so, uh, you know, uh, Ducati, um, Polaris had a licensed one. I don't know if they still do. Uh, Yamaha definitely has brought their, um, their products into the States. Those are brands that are, that are getting it. Um, and, uh, and we need to embrace that. And once you get into traditional electric motorcycles, you know, your, uh, you know, Alta is, is kind of fizzled, but the, uh, but zero, you know, uh, since we last spoke, I put together and ran a program for the international motorcycle shows that took zero motorcycles, their FXS, which is their sportiest, lightest bike. And then we basically didn't even turn a wrench on it. We just plugged in the computer, only allowed the motorcycles to go 11 miles an hour. And then they, they accelerate very slow to 11 miles an hour. So we basically programmed whiskey throttle out of the bike. And then we took total neophyte riders. All you had to do was show that you could ride in balance on a bicycle. Um, and then we put people who had never ridden onto a motorcycle in 10 minutes and then gave them an indoor carpeted demo course where they could do some oval laps. They only turned left. They only learned the most basics, but they controlled the wind for the first time. And, um, and it's really that simple. Sometimes we just overthink stuff. Um, and electric bicycles are an absolute gateway to, um, all things motorcycling and will grow into their own category because of the ease of use, low maintenance, low noise, low vibration. I live in Texas. It does get hot in the summertime and my zero motorcycle does not get hot in the summertime. I just kind of sit on it like a bar stool in traffic. So, uh, so that's, that's another category that old school thought is going to crush us. The, the example you just gave, though, of the program you ran with zero, does that speak to uh, like a good marketing program or the versatility of an electric motorcycle being that you can detune it to attract someone who may not want to get on a bike that's too powerful for them? Yeah, it's both. It's mm -hmm. both. You know, the, the um, zero, unfortunately, all their bikes are really tall. You know, uh, they're all kind of supermoto triangles are, you know, largely speaking. Um, but... The technology exists for a training school to be able to walk up to a bike, Bluetooth connect to that bike and determine that this bike can only go 
11 miles an hour, but this bike over here, cause it's an intermediate rider can go 25 miles an hour and can accelerate a little bit quicker. Mm. That absolutely exists out there. So the traditional, you know, motorcycle safety foundation, you know, four day slog of, you know, clutch control and friction zone and, and, you know, and sitting in a classroom. If, if I can take somebody who's literally never put a motorcycle helmet on in their life and 10 minutes later, they're doing laps on a motorcycle and we can't universally adapt a program like that into, you know, into, um, uh, you know, public spaces, uh, and, and high schools and things, you know, I mean, to, to, expose more people to that sort of stuff, then again, we're just, we miss the plot. And, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're at a really amazing point of technology and access. And it's up to us to engage that opportunity. Us as in the motorcycle industry. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Nobody else is going to do it. You, you mentioned there about, um, about companies uh, that were doing uh, bicycles as well, and the, the motorcycle companies that are doing electric bicycles as well, or electric assist. I think Yamaha has been doing it for a very long time in, in other countries, and now bring it to the U.S. But isn't there already all that separation now? I mean, you've got your bicycle companies that have sort of morphed into electric assist, and maybe some some companies that have started up just electric assist alone. I don't really see the crossover yet. Uh, well, if you go to uh, Tom Hicks' store down in Southern California Motorcycles, he has uh, – he's a really interesting guy. So he has basically bought up the units inside a subdivision. So each one of the units – not a subdivision, excuse me, a mini mall a sort of thing um, – each one of those units that, you know, this one's the Triumph store, this one's the Ducati store. So, so they, you know, get to put their sort of best brand foot forward. Well, he, one of the units got turned into a giant electric bicycle store, giant, the brand. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and he's killing it. He's doing such a good job and, and it's drawing motorcycle people into the bicycle store and it's drawing a certain type of bicycle person who trusts the mechanical ability of a motorcycle shop over that of a bicycle shop um, to sell a powered, uh, you know, bicycle unit. So it's not a binary decision where, um, you know, only bicycle people, uh, can understand this stuff because there's such a, a crossover in the styles of electric assist bicycles that there are, if you look at, um, uh, I think Monday motorcycles is another Austin, Texas company, you know, the, the, the silhouette of the bike is like sort of this bicycle meets cafe racer kind of by bi- super 73. There's another one where literally it's, it's designed to emulate a like seventies mini bike, you know, in its look. And, it, and it's ridiculous to me that, that as a, um, as a trade that we're not, um, aggressively trying to adopt those people into our world. Um, and certainly bicycle people are going to do the same thing. And, and there's absolutely tons of people who are never, ever, ever going to touch or you know, uh, a motorcycle, but they're, the goal again is to go from 7% to 8%. It's not to go from, you know, 7% to 45, you know, and if we could, if we did this incrementally concurrently with the youth ridership programs concurrently with, um, uh, these micro influencer events, um, 
then in 10 years time, you know, where it, it's the, the, the world is going to be really different for us in a very positive way. Why do you think it is that young people aren't riding motorcycles as much as they used to? Um, you're hitting on a really strong thing. This is one of the reasons that, that, you know, I've, I've worked with, um, all kids bike is youth ridership, uh, is down like 21%. That's where motorcycling comes from. And Ryan McFarland, who started that company, basically started building these products because he was selfish. He wanted to spend time with his son riding motorcycles in the future. And what he saw was his boy getting packed into a minivan to go to karate practice. And, you know, and to put on the old man hat, back in our day, you know, you used to ride your bicycle to go do everything. And, um, you know, and, and the world is a lot more complicated place. So I'm not going to say that if I were a parent, I would tell my kid to go, you know, ride a bicycle to school every single day. Like I, I did. Um, however, uh, that, um, uh, that culture, it's not surprising that, that since generation X, I'm 53 generation X was born analog but will die digital. Generation X, when we were um, middle to older teenagers um, and the rise of CNN and negative news and, and latchkey kids and the divorce rate going up, were essentially told to, you know, come home, lock the door. You can watch some TV or play Atari. It, it's not, it shouldn't be shocking that that generation gives a screen to their kids as a pacifier. And then, you know, and then it moves down the line and now the screens are portable and, you know, and there's, you know, cell phone holders and bassinets out there. Right. And it's like um, that shouldn't be surprising one bit. Um, but when you expose a kid to riding and the freedom of two wheels, every one of the tired old stereotypes that we lean on freedom and wind in your hair and, and, you know, self-control and all that stuff that, that just seems like we've just beaten it into the ground until it's just such a stereotype that it doesn't really matter anymore. Those things are 100% fresh for that kid to put your feet up onto the bottom rail of the bicycle and coast for five feet. The joy and that kid's face for feeling that movement, that without having to be ambulatory and move their feet to do that, to coast, is such a freeing thing that when we get um, enough boys and girls exposed uh, to that kind of thing at, the, at, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, you know, we're going to have a significant percentage of riders for the rest of their natural lives. So you think it, it all comes from childhood. And, yes. and the reason I ask is, is because, you know, when I grew up, of course, I rode bicycles just like you did, um, being roughly the same age. And all, all the girls rode bicycles, too. But the motorcycle thing, that was more of a guy thing. You know, it, at that time, there wasn't as many women into riding motorcycles. I and mean, certainly were, were some, um, but not as many. It seemed like a guy thing. So but we both grew up or we all grew up riding bicycles. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not going to apologize for the sexism of the past, you know, I mean, uh, the, you know, this, the, I mean, that's an impossible thing, but you know, if, if this industry wants to put any real horsepower and just get past the lip service of new, 
or of more women riding motorcycles, the number one best thing to do is to put every elementary school boy and girl onto two wheels as part of a, you know, a PE course. And then all of a sudden, 51% of the population being female are going to know how to ride and balance on two wheels. And guess what? That will eventually show up in the ridership numbers. And, um, uh, and again, you know, Black Girls Ride at Wild Apparel is doing a fantastic job talking to uh, their uh, uh, community. Gigi Montrose does an awesome job with, you know, with her community. Um, and, um, and the Ride Wild Collective, I mean, these are, these are the efforts that are bringing uh, more female riders in now. And imagine how much easier it's going to be, you know, down the road when every, every kid gets exposed to it. To wrap things up here, I, I want to get your predictions. I, I want to see how you see the future playing out and, and sort of taking into account what's happened with this year, because I think we've all been blindsided by many things that have happened uh, as we've dealt with COVID going through. So taking that in, seeing how things have changed, where do you see us going for next year and beyond? Um, I, I, I have to acknowledge my mom for raising me with a sense of history, you know, that, that things don't just, things aren't just here. They came from someplace. Every bridge you drove across came from someplace. It came from work. It came from thought. It came from his history. And, um, if, uh, we don't rethink the way that we've been doing things aggressively in the next few years, um, then, then we're absolutely destined to, to fail. Um, motorcycling has had its ups and downs in history. Uh, repeating that can, can happen, but the amount of technological change and the generational change that we're talking about, that baby boomers who largely speaking or, you know, were certainly raised analog and uh, will effectively die analog. They're going to have more, you know, negatives in shoeboxes than, than, than the next generations. Um, some of those folks are still in control or are still in decision-making positions in motorcycling. Uh, and I hope some of those folks, you know, retire out and allow new thought to come in. If that new thought comes in um, and if we are allowed to experiment, to fail, to get better and do it again uh, and use these unbelievably exciting new tools that we have access to in terms of communication and, and you know, uh, and technology, um, then if we don't use that stuff and we stay hemmed into a traditional old school thought of motorcycling, it is going to, it's going to get crushed. It will get crushed by new brands that are making electric assist vehicles, electric assist pedal cycles and, you know, e-motorcycles. New brands will come up in the same way that Tesla has come up in the electric vehicle category and just absolutely barnstormed, um, you know, and, and pushed technology. The same thing can happen in motorcycling. And if we don't um, look at our own history to learn uh, lessons of the mistakes we've made, 
and then to leverage the knowledge we have in community, um, then that's, again, just shame on us. Uh, there's a load of opportunity out there, uh, and the timing has never been more ripe for there to be a growth of motorcycling. Um, and, uh, uh, and I, it's hard to make a, it's hard to make a prediction, um, specific to the entire world of motorcycling, but I think that there is going to be a new energy in motorcycling. Um, and it's not necessarily going to be in the traditional, the traditional paths or necessarily with the traditional brands, but there is time to change that. There's still the opportunity to, to be better and to, um, uh, and just, you know, sell motorcycles and, and expand this community. So to be excited for, or, or to, to be worried about? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so lots, lots, uh, predicted to happen anyway. A lot of things. Yeah, we're, even, yeah, we're even, standing in the middle of the teeter totter. It, it could, it could go, things could go either way. They but, really can, but, but, even but, you're but saying, the opportunities uh, there. You're saying about the, the companies that, you know, if, if they don't do something, new companies will come along, uh, like Tesla, for instance. But I mean, as a consumer, who cares? <laughs> you, you know, right. I, mean, I mean, you could look at it that way. You could say, who cares? Well, as long as I get my motorcycle and get the, the best thing out there, then who cares what the, what the brand is? If it's a good brand, they stand behind it, then, then more power to them sort of thing. So, yeah. 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 It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's exciting to think about. And sometimes I get burned out thinking about this stuff, but conversations <laughs> like this get me, you know, fired back up. Um, because, um, it is, uh, it goes back to that, that core, that first time you coasted your bicycle down a, down a hill and you felt, you know, a level of acceleration that, that you'd never felt before in your life. And, and to have that kind of access to that kind of emotion, you know, up until your dying day as a motorcyclist is just fantastic. Yeah. No, and, uh, and the more people that are exposed to it, the more people that are going to be riding with us. Robert, it's been a real pleasure having you on and it, the conversation does the same thing for me. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you for the time and, and I appreciate all the listeners out there and we'll see you down the road. I've been speaking with Robert Pangia from his home in Georgetown, Texas. You can find Robert on LinkedIn and uh, we have a link to his bio in the show notes for this episode. Now, if if you have comments, if you find yourself listening to this and having uh, ideas or commenting to yourself, or you're, maybe you have your own perceptions or ideas on what we've discussed, drop by our website, put your comments in the show notes for this episode. We'd love to see them. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio.
Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks, of course, to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. If you're not doing it already, we would love to get your support for Adventure Rider Radio. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker for your pannier, your toolbox, whatever. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our Raw show, and uh, we would love to get your support monthly on our Patreon account. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on support. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Helge Pedersen, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 